Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Around the world, there is a community of researchers using artificial intelligence to unlock new innovations like life-saving drugs and new materials. But in so doing, they might be breaking something too. The scientific method. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly show on technology and science. And this week, we're asking, does AI change how scientific advancement happens? What makes science, science? Well, it's a method. Yes, it entails experiments and publishing results and the reproducibility of findings. But these are just the aspects of the process for its outputs. But what makes science science is the method or process of its inputs. The veritable grandfather was Galileo Galilei. His book on two new sciences in the mid-1600s sought to explain motion and falling bodies. So he ran experiments and recorded data. His procedure has been summed up as... Description first, explanation second. In other words, get the facts, then develop a theory. The idea was later systematized by Francis Bacon, and it's been the cornerstone of research ever since. But the very nature of science presumed that a human mind had to be able to cogitate on the idea. We asked a few prominent scientists. First up, the flashy and interstellar astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Science is a way of querying nature, using methods and tools to establish something that is objectively true, something that is true whether or not you believe in it. What science is and how and why it works is someone does an experiment. I don't care your expertise. They'll get a result. If it's an extraordinary result, I'm another scientist. And I say, you know, that's kind of extraordinary. I don't even believe it. Let me try to do another experiment and then another and another. And a suite of experiments get conducted and observations get made. And when there is convergence on what the result is, you have a newly established scientific truth. The scientific method means understanding that you don't know the truth and designing some experiment whose outcome you don't know, but the outcome will tell you more about what the truth is. You hypothesize, you see some phenomena you're trying to explain or you're trying to mimic, and you have some hypothesis about how it's doing that or how it works. And then you design an experiment, ideally a carefully controlled experiment, to isolate that phenomena and to test out your hypothesis. If it works, and then other people repeat your experiment and with independent sort of variables and kind of confirm your initial findings, then you can maybe be confident that that holds. And then usually in science, that means you have 10 extra questions. That was Stuart Russell, the AI researcher who wrote the textbook literally on AI. And then the modern day Isaac Newton, Demis Sassabis, who's the co-founder and chief executive of the world's premier AI company, 
DeepMind. Even the practitioners have different interpretations and foci. What we do know is that the scientific method contains these key principles. Hypothesis. A proposed explanation for something that happens. Experiment. A procedure to support, refute, or validate a hypothesis. Observation. Information collected from the experiment. And theory. A mental framework that explains how a feature of the world works. What comprises the scientific method has many different dimensions, and it has changed over time. Now, we could easily run a five-hour panel on this. For example, does theory come at the end of the process or at the very outset? Can we ever validate or only falsify? And is causality the gold standard or fool's gold? Let's think about this scientifically. Just as scientists observe empirical data and draw conclusions, so too should we observe what's happening in science to understand the scientific method. Well, I spent 25 years of my life in formal education, cramming as much knowledge as I could into my brain to become a protein engineer. And at the end of a five-year PhD, the primary conclusion that I reached was humans aren't very good at protein engineering. James Field is a biologist and the chief executive of Lab Genius. It's a startup based in a former biscuit factory in East London, and it's trying to develop new drugs based on proteins by overcoming the shortcomings of the human brain. Biology is really complex, and typically as humans, when we try and understand something, we have to abstract that idea into language and abstract it in, into a simple enough form that we can communicate linguistically. And when you try and do that about a system that is incredibly complex, you often lose a lot of the nuance that enables you to accurately represent it. In addition, actually, when you're trying to do the protein engineering process yourself, you're there in a lab as a highly trained scientist, often doing a lot of very monotonous pipetting. So both on the cognition side and the experimental execution side, we as humans are definitely not ideal for conducting those sorts of scientific experiments. James and his team are using AI to run, evaluate, and adapt experiments. He took me on a tour of his laboratory. This is the team. Hey. Stefan and yeah. Kelly, who I think you met. Pedro, do you want, do you want us in lab coats? Uh, in here, yes, please. Yeah, okay, so we're going to coat up. Ken, you've got a, you've got, these are the goggles you have to be wearing. Those are, those are legendary in the company. It turns out that you need to wear lab coat and safety goggles if you're going to go into a laboratory. Some things will never change. So why are we talking about Lab Genius? After all, this is meant to be a show about the scientific method. Here is the link. AI techniques like machine learning and what's called generative or evolutionary algorithms work by spotting patterns in massive data sets, and they improve their performance based on feedback, basically the results of previous analyses. It's what powers how you find your next box set, how Alexa understands you, Hello. how you meet your plethora of Tinder dates, all that absolutely marvelous stuff. What James and a few other companies and researchers are doing is applying these techniques in a novel way. And this could have a big implication for science. We'll have a computer generate hypotheses over what specific genetic designs could work well and which may not work so well. So for example, when we're trying to create a new protein, we think of it really as a, as a solution space that we're exploring. And this solution space is effectively infinite. And you can computationally predict, based on the knowledge that you have, that you've generated empirically, which potential designs, if you were to test them in the real world, may be high performers and which may be low performers. And that enables you to actually rationalize the number of molecules that you, you actually will test physically in the real world. 
James's team uses an algorithm that can develop hypotheses with almost no prior knowledge of a topic, which might otherwise bias what it factors in. AI helps run the experiment, it evaluates the results, and then it uses those findings as an input to automatically generate new hypotheses and perform new experiments. In this way, it evolves, and it may eventually achieve a desired result say, identify a new drug or create a new material with certain properties. So we'll go from this effectively infinite design space to, say, 10 trillion unique protein designs that we want to test here in the real world. And then we'll physically manufacture DNA sequences, so a mixed pool of trillions of unique DNA sequences that are made synthetically, each of which encodes a unique genetic design. Those DNA sequences are then used to create the proteins that they encode, and then we test physically here in the real world trillions of those different protein designs. We then use next-generation sequencing to interrogate which of those genetic designs were high performers and which were low performers, and then we use machine learning to really understand the relationship between sequence and fitness. How long does it take to do that? That whole process currently takes about 27 days. Holy You're running trillions of experiments in 27 days. That's right, and you're doing it recursively. So every time you, you test a new trillion different things, those new trillion designs will be better. This really is a holy smokes moment for science. Let's stop and think about this for a second. What this means is that all that can be known will not be dependent on being conjured up by the human mind. Now, an algorithmic silicon system may uncover something new, and it will have done that in effect by trial and error at a vast silicon scale. This is hypothesis-free science, or radical empiricism, seeing what works, basically without theory per se. And the vast scale with which it operates matters. After all, a saying in science is, more is different. If a zillion monkeys bashed on a keyboard, eventually one will write a Shakespearean sonnet by chance. Likewise, this technique, sometimes called empirical computing, is the scientific equivalent of that. If we increase the scale of our experiments billions-fold, we may eventually identify the right answer to an elusive question like, what combination of chemical compounds cures a disease? You could think about this whole protein engineering problem as a search problem. Say that there is a disease that you want to cure, and you're confident that a protein drug could be made to cure it, but you just don't know the sequence of that protein. That protein sequence exists in this theoretical space that we call sequence space. And if you knew that sequence today, then you could be synthesizing that drug, that pharmaceutical product, in your lab within a week. Now the challenge is, because that sequence space is infinite, actually finding that molecule uh, is, a is a very difficult challenge. Whenever we think about evolving a new protein, we think about how do you rationalize that search through sequence space. The way that we do that is by really combining brute force, the brute force of biology, the ability to test trillions of things in parallel, with the intelligence of computational, being able to take a lot of data, the data for trillions of different experiments, and really crunch it to get new insight that enables us to rationalize that search through sequence space. But James isn't alone searching through this space. Over the past two years, I've met other researchers who are pioneering this technique. 
There's recursion pharmaceutical in Salt Lake City, Utah. Maybe a single pathologist can go look at 10 cells an hour and within each cell look at four or five different things, but a computer vision algorithm can go look at 10 million cells in an hour, right? And for each of those 10 million cells, it can go look at 20,000 features. And when you have that sort of scale, both in breadth and depth, I think you start to see really interesting things. And that's, of course, what's happening. And there's Zymergen in California. But what if we could approach genetic engineering the way Google does search? Not relying on hypotheses, but on algorithms that systematically search the full space. There is no set term to describe what's happening. It is a-theoretical by ignoring or at least minimizing prior knowledge. It is hyper-empirical trial and error. Because it does not rely on theory and you just throw anything and everything at a problem to see what works, you might call it kitchen sink science. But is this changing how science is actually done? To answer this question, I spoke to deep thinkers in the area whose day jobs are to finance the technology. Zavadar, I'm a partner at Lux Capital, early stage deep tech fund split between New York and Menlo Park, teach and lecture at Stanford, background in computer science, machine learning, AI, all of the buzzy stuff that we read about today. Science has so far needed a human mind to conjure up an idea, but humans are biased to think in certain ways and see certain things. An algorithm is not. And that may change how science is actually done. If you think about the scientific method, we assume that there are underlying ground truths. And we as scientists or discoverers or practitioners of whatever field we're in, we're looking for those patterns. We're looking for those algorithms that are at once true but generalizable across the entire kind of domain that you're working in. Perhaps we can move away from this actual hit-driven scientific method, at least in complex dynamical systems, where there may in fact be a ground truth. But oftentimes we're limited by our own understanding, our own kind of limitations of humans. And so we're able to use a similar sort of machine learning or empirical approach to solving these problems, even though there may actually be ground truths. What humans are able to know becomes a paramount question. The world is a complex place, and we are limited in our senses and our synapses. But we now have a technology that can exceed people's ability to comprehend the world and act upon it. Arguably, there are realities in the world. There are systems that are complex enough that no individual human or no group of humans can actually grok them. Right. I think AlphaGo last year from DeepMind was a great example. You taught this computer a game that you know we've all played probably countless times. The world's experts looked at the computer and weren't able to understand what it was doing. Right. The computer found a unique pattern that we may not understand. It may like the complexity of what that computer saw may be beyond like what is almost epistemologically possible for an individual to grok or understand or comprehend. Coming up. Does this really spell the end of the scientific method as we know it? There is a strong idea that AI can even take over the scientific methods, that we can have a complete automation of discovery, you know, that we can now just generate knowledge simply by putting lots of data through pre-made AI algorithms. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
The scientific method is in some ways the paragon of human intellect and civilization. But does AI change things by taking away humans from the center of the knowledge of the universe in the same way that Galileo took Earth away from the center of the solar system? So my name is Sabina Leonelli. I'm a professor of philosophy and history of science at the University of Exeter. I asked Sabina whether AI-driven experiments could spell the end of the scientific method. Well, that's the story that many would like us to believe. I personally don't quite believe that this is what we are seeing at this point in science, and I'm not even sure that we will ever see that. There seems to be much more consensus around AI providing a way to complement human intelligence, if you want. So it's not a case of having artificial intelligence that completely takes over, but it's a case of being able to insert human ingenuity and intelligence and decision-making into AI systems, so you can actually have an overarching, much better, much more efficient environment for discovery. So perhaps the scientific method isn't completely decimated, but it is substantially altered. It's not clear that a human mind will be able to understand how the discoveries that AI makes work, how the algorithm reached its conclusion. The interactions and interdependencies that led to a discovery may be so complex that we're aware that something works, but not how it works. In such a world, what is the role of humans? Nan Lee, partnered at a Silicon Valley-based venture firm called Obvious Ventures, background in computer science and math. Rules define almost every industry, every decision-making event that exists today, and people are uncomfortable when we deviate from this model-based, rules-driven world. So the interpretation layer is very important. If James's evolutionary algorithm does find something interesting with empirical performance, he still has to be the interpreter to bring it into the world and justify why it should exist, justify why it's trustworthy, and ultimately bring it to market for anyone to get any value or utility out of it. When I spoke to Nandli and Zavendar last winter, they both knew of James's work. But last month, they put their money where their mouths are and they invested in his company, Lab Genius. The question is always, what kind of knowledge are we looking for? So if all we're looking for is a set of computations, so any mental operation where you already know exactly the parameters within which you're looking at that knowledge, and I think your pocket calculator is the perfect example of that, is a system where you know exactly which parameters you're using to make the calculations, it's all set out for you, and all you want out of the machine is a numerical result. You know the rules, you know what's going to happen, you just don't want to be do it as your own cognitive function. Now, what happens with many of the AI systems that we're seeing in operation within actual pieces of research is much more complex than that. Expertise is still absolutely crucial to contextualize that piece of information that you're getting out of AI. So, completely on board with the idea that we are looking at fantastically innovative and really helpful new systems to produce bits of knowledge. But the question still is, what do we need as human beings in our own social situations to actually be able to use those pieces of knowledge and understand their significance to our advantage? In Sabina's metaphor, it doesn't matter how a pocket calculator reached its answer so long as people can understand the results. But there is another problem. Who gets to own the calculator? These advanced AI techniques are expensive. So who gets to produce and own scientific discovery? Although James Field is advancing the state of the art, he also worries about this. 
What this means, in my opinion, for the human scientific method is a whole way in which we think about knowledge generation and who actually owns that knowledge is going to change quite substantially. And that has huge implications both for the academic community, but also, I think, for uh, industry as a whole. If these engines cost so much to develop, only a small number will ultimately exist in well-financed commercial vehicles, either startups or venture-backed startups or, or large corporations. And to think that those entities will be able to generate entirely new knowledge that in theory has incredible scientific but also commercial value is one that we need to think really carefully about. If we unlock new knowledge but don't understand how it works, is that a problem? Will the lack of explainability create a backlash to using the technique? We're already seeing unease in society about adopting AI in healthcare and banking and policing. Perhaps this will create a situation that will thwart its adoption. Nanli again. You're going to continue seeing pushback by people who understand the world through a lens of rules that will always want root cause analysis and in the pharmaceutical world, it's mechanism of action. And I think that will be a battle that's played out much further into the future than when the empirical algorithms have actually discovered meaningful progress in these different fields. They'll always be limited by this post-facto interpretation. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because right now it is a bottleneck for some of these systems to be deployed. So humans have invented science, and science has given us AI. And now AI, if not totally taking away human-centered science, is at least profoundly changing it. What I think will be really interesting, when do we hit that inflection point whereby the center of gravity of science shifts from one in which humans are driving it to one in which these engines are driving it? This leaves a huge amount of white space for foundational scientific research where, where I think humans will continue to dominate for, for many years to come. The question of who owns knowledge is one we will be debating for a long time as AI unleashes a wave of scientific discovery. As it does... Is it even right to ask whether it ends the scientific method? The very idea is an affront to those who feel the process is sacrosanct. But it should not be so controversial. The dirty little secret in the biz is that there is no scientific method. Per se, there are scientific methods. It's plural. The process has always evolved to take on new features, like math and statistics. AI is just the latest jolt to the system. And we have always lived with practical application first and explanations later. To cite just one example, Roman soldiers used honey on their wounds without knowing a whit about its antimicrobial properties. But the way AI does science represents an exciting new shift in how we understand our world and our place in it. Over time, a gap may grow between what is known by humans and only uncoverable or comprehensible by machines. That sounds a bit frightening, but also exhilarating. I hope it does to you, because I think it's going to happen whether we like it or not. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Babbage on the Scientific Method. Remember, if you like our journalism, you can take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And before we go, we'd like to find out a bit more about you. So we're running a listener survey with a few questions about you and what you enjoyed listening to. It would be a great help to us if you'd participate. Please go to economist.com slash pod survey. Thank you in advance. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, 
This is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.